Layovers, your weekly dose of aviation innovation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard from the flight deck. This is Paul Pavelevichu. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Hunter. We'll be your pilots for this show about the news, the startups, and the technologies defining the modern air travel experience. Our flight time today, an hour and 40 minutes, and we expect a time arrival. Coming up on this flight, LaGuardia, maybe the worst airport in the US, gets fully rebuilt. Emirates is getting what it wanted, a new Airbus A380. A United pilot ditches live ammunition into plane toilets. A Chinese consortium buys a 1 billion worth Spanish airport for 10,000 euros. The life of frequent flyer expert Brent Schlappig, who lives in first class all year round, and our guest, Greg Annandale tells us all about SpaceX and its experience with La Compagnie, the business-only long-haul airline. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the fast signal sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Flight 19 to Rio. Hello. Hey, Rio. An airport and, embarrassingly, a continent I've never been to before. I really need what? to fix that. I know. I <laughs> well, I chose Rio because, you know, although it's a summer destination, right now it's the winter, and it kind of kind of plays well with what happens in London currently because it's actually the winter in London right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. It's raining sideways and ugh. But we, it's a special episode as well because we uh, we have someone else in the cockpit today. In the cockpit, I like that. Yes, we have uh, my good friend Greg Annandale joining us. Hi, Greg. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. I've been an avid listener since episode one, so it's uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. That's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah you've you've actually you've actually uh, sent us uh, lots of news. I mean, Alex has been telling me. Greg has told me that. Greg has been telling me that. So that thank you so much for being also, not only a listener but an active member of our audience. Absolutely. And Greg is a uh, is up there in when it comes to travel nerdery. Some of the the stuff he does and that I've learned from him is 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 pretty impressive. But do you want to tell us a little bit about like who you are and and what you do and uh, your your travel background? Yeah, of course. So um, I mean, I'm a web developer. That's really my my primary um, job. Uh, I've been working freelance for near enough ten years now, and um, currently I'm working with Code Club. We're um, a nonprofit based in in London. Um, and around that, I've always really just had a love for travel. Um, I always enjoyed flying from an early age. I was really into all combat aircraft when I was a kid. I used to like just memorize all the top Trump stats of, <laughs> of military aircraft. And um, I mean, I've been playing flight sims all my life. So it's, yeah, it's something that's quite dear to me. And um, um, really in the last few years, I've, been flying a lot more um that's partly due to my wife being an american we met in new york um i spend a lot of time heading over there um but also i i do some work as a photographer as well it's it's more of a hobby than anything there's a few paying jobs here and there but it's it kind of helps fuel my travel really it's it's a good excuse to get on a plane and, and go somewhere interesting and take some pictures do you know do you do all as well plane photography <laughs> <laughs> i haven't really done much actually i, I don't really shoot aircraft themselves um i'd like to do photography from aircraft um i have a friend actually who's a pilot near me in, in the bristol area and he's promised to take me up a few times and, and do some photography so that would be great 
Wow. So how many fights have you taken this year? Because you were racking up the miles last time I talked to you. Yeah, well, this year's actually been a little bit quieter. Um, the first couple of months, uh, I was mostly in the US. I didn't really shift from there. So I think I'm only on about 15 or so, so far. Um, last year was just crazy. I think I hit 53 last year, um, which is just a little <laughs> bit excessive. <laughs> Most of those are long haul as well. So, so can you tell your DVT story? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I thought that might come up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or there's like that that number 53 is even more impressive when you hear what Greg has to do before every single flight he takes. So this was uh, December or late November, early December 2012. Um, I had just come back to the UK off a uh, flight from Texas, London Heathrow, and then um, that same day went on to Prague. Um, and I came off my flight in, in London just with a little twinge in my, in my left car. And it, it kind of felt just like a pulls muscle, nothing more than that. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just stretch it out over a few days and it should go away. And yeah, a week it was still there, 10 days later, I suddenly got really bad. I was out, I just had this shooting pain in my calf and it, it felt bizarre it wasn't just a muscular pain it, it i could feel it in my ankle and up into my knee as well and straight away i knew that something wasn't quite right so i went to er um i already figured roughly what it was in my head but i went on to er had some tests and they told me i had a blood clot in my calf oh wow um yeah so um that involved uh, getting rid of that involved three months of treatment on blood thinners um injections tablets etc not being able to fly um just generally being pretty careful because my blood was obviously thin and wouldn't really clot. So I had to be careful with any outdoor activities, any cycling, that sort of thing. Um, and spent a bit of time with a hematologist just trying to figure out what had happened because I mean, 2012, I'd flown quite a bit. That was maybe 35 flights, I think, that year. Um, but they uh, said, the specialist I saw just said they couldn't really figure it out. They obviously saw my flying history and noticed that I flew a lot. But they said that they usually see DVTs in people with either pre-existing conditions um, and uh, in terms of flying, usually on, uh, you know, London to um, uh, Sydney, you know, super long flights um, where people just drink a few gin, gin and tonics, knock themselves out, wouldn't move for 12 hours. <laughs> so they were kind of surprised. And So you know, how, how long did you well. not fly for after the diagnosis? So... There was only really a two or three week period where they actually said you really mustn't fly during this, that period. Um, what actually happened is that once I was on the blood thinners, I had to be tested. My blood uh, had to be tested at least once a week. So it meant that the practicality of not being in the UK again to get to hospital was actually the issue. I, I technically could get on a flight, um, but it just wasn't practical to go off to the US for a month or so. Wow. Um, so then after that, I mean, like I said, they, they didn't say it was definitely fine that caused it. And I've obviously flown a lot since and, and I haven't had any issues. But preventatively, they, uh, the doctors put me on um, Clexane injections, a blood thinner, essentially. So I have to inject before every flight. That's a, it's a belly injection oh, before God. every flight. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to do that now every single time. Yeah. yeah. That is I've, I've, I've been there. I was, I was hospitalized when I had a, a big accident, a ski accident, like more than 15 years ago now. And I had to do that every single day. Actually, I had to... Sh <laughs> inject myself with that kind of thing yeah, it's not the it's not, greatest not that yeah. fun. no it's not no. <laughs> oh, so that yeah that is dedication to the art of flying i would say 
Absolutely. Well, well, welcome, Greg. That's quite a story. <laughs> I really hope it never happens to me, honestly. Yeah, me oh. too. Oh, <laughs> God. Well, uh, so lots of lots of stories this week. Uh, first, a quick shout out to a few friends. This being a TEDx. I don't know if you guys know what TEDx is. It's a independently produced uh, TED event. A TEDx in an airport in Tokyo, TEDx Aneda, so that that international airport. And I was looking at the pictures online. I was so jealous because they were in the hangar of Jaws, so they were having a party next to these big, massive aircrafts. And I'm like, why nobody thought How about did it we before? Not know about this? <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, so no, not only I will know for the next time if they do it again, and I will tell you guys. But the second thing is, we should do one like this or something because this is really amazing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, stories of the, the first story of the week is uh, just very quickly during our break, because we haven't had an episode for almost two and a half weeks now. Uh, there was the first anniversary of the MH17 crash. So uh, there was a lot of, of course, uh, stuff that happened. We don't want to uh, talk too much about it. There's been some new developments in the in the story. Uh, apparently, really, it seems that they, you know, somebody truly shot that plane. Was it on purpose or not? It doesn't look like it. It looks like it was. Uh, they thought they were uh, shooting another plane, but still, it's a sad day. Uh, we're still not sure what ha exactly happened, but we just wanted to say um, uh, that um, we're thinking about the families and everybody who was involved uh, in that crash. Yeah. Uh, moving on to uh, a story which came up already many times before in our show. Uh, actually, came up in the first ever show we had since Greg has been listening. Uh, <laughs> it's the A380 Neo. Uh, you want to take that one, Alex? Yeah, they've they've Airbus have finally come out and said that they are committed to this new uh, re-engined, re-aerodynamically designed version of the A380. They've finally come out. They've ended gosh, almost a year of speculation that will they, won't they. Emirates had put massive pressure on them to really make the airplane more efficient. Obviously, Emirates are huge fans of it. They have 150 of them. Actually, there are only 300 planes ordered and Emirates account for for uh, for half over half of that. <laughs> and they've just announced that Gatwick is going to be all A380. So they're going to have five dailies to Heathrow and five, uh, three dailies to Gatwick, all 380. So that's over 4,000 available seats per day coming from London, wow. which is an extraordinary endorsement to the platform. But they say that they could launch this as early as 2020. So it, it sounds like it'll be a very aggressive redevelopment of this, of this airplane. So they haven't gone into the specifics of other than the re-engineering and some optimization of the, the flight profile. Uh, of what else they're going to do, but it will be interesting to see if anybody else jumps on this. And I think for Airbus's sake, I hope they do because it's going to cost them over three billion US dollars to do this. Yeah, and uh, actually, we said on episode double uh, one that Emirates wanted to buy hundred A three eighty Neos, then they went and said, "Oh, we'll actually buy two hundred of them." That was in episode double seven. <laughs> and uh, we, I remember when we talked about uh, Tim Clark's interview in the IFE of Emirates in episode fourteen. He said that you know the new airport at Dubai will cater for two hundred fifty million passengers a year eventually. So meaning that probably they will even have to buy more of these. So basically, they are driving that program by themselves i mean i'm not sure anyone because no one has, has ordered any uh of not for a long time in, it'll yeah. be interesting to see if other big operators like qantas singapore airlines jump on this as well and if they were if they had also themselves been asking for 
a newer, updated version, more efficient version of the A380, but they didn't have the purchasing clout to get Airbus to actually do it. So now that they've committed, it'll be interesting to see if the orders start trickling in. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the one noticeable thing is that uh, Airbus seemingly says that there won't be an option between two different engines. They want to go with a single engine, a single option, uh, I guess, to reduce costs of development, also to reduce uh, flying tests, because you don't have to fly to do two, run two programs of testing at the same time if you have a single engine to test for. Which I guess uh, explains the slightly compressed development time, too. Yeah. And there's a rumor, though, uh, but I mean, again, like there's no specifics, that there, there are a possibility to look into having up to a thousand seats in an all economy uh, setting in the new A380. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. No, thank you. Can you imagine the toilets? Good Greg, Greg, have you ever flown the A380? Yeah, a few times. Um, I've flown, let me think, uh, it was beginning of last year, I flew to Singapore um, and to Melbourne as well, two separate trips. Um, And then again, later last year, I went to Bangkok and... Uh, oh, return trip to Bangkok. That was it. So yeah, a few times. Mostly, uh, was it on Emirates? Emirates and Qantas. Yeah. Qantas, yeah, yeah. I've never flown yeah. the Qantas one. Is as- Actually, the Qantas one is interesting. There's, there's a good little tip. It's kind of like the the Virgin seven four seven tip of get yourself up in the uh, on the top yeah, deck. Deck, absolutely. There's there's a rear upper deck economy on Qantas uh, oh, uh, which mm-hmm. is worth knowing. Um, it's even smaller than the than the Virgin seven four seven upper deck. And there's a, a full width exit row as well. So even if you sit in the four seats in the middle, you have a huge amount of legroom. Nice. Um, that's a great tip. Really very knowing. good tip. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, nice. It's a really good spot. So yeah, right at the back of the plane and there's, I can't remember exactly, but there's something like 20, 20 odd seats. It's not big. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, Emirates doesn't have any, Emirates is only first in, um and business class on top. They don't have premium economy. Which, which, by the way, did you don't you think, guys, that they should at some point introduce premium economy on on Emirates? It makes, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk we'll talk about it later because I have a few news about these uh, uh, aircraft. And, but I want to continue on aircraft because there was one thing that uh, I think I told maybe I told on this show or if not, you'll know. I always wanted to do the longest flight ever. A commercial, commercially available flight was Singapore was flying from Newark to Singapore. To Singapore, uh, they stopped the uh, this service in November 2013, if I remember correctly. It was an 18 and a half hours flight, so that was why I wanted to fly it because 18 and a half hours. They stopped it because it was not economically viable. It was an old business setting. There was only like 200 seats or something, or everything business. It was not economically viable, but there was a, a piece of news I read the other day on uh, Lehman News, which is always a very, very good uh, source of, of information, which said that apparently there might be an A350-900 long-range in development, uh, which actually could reignite that route for Singapore. Wow. So I really hope it happens because right now, basically what happens is that on the previous route, they had to fly a four engine airplane and that's why it was not economically feasible. Whereas the A350-900LR, which is not, which means long range, is a two engine airplane. So I really hope they make it. That I've done LA Hong Kong because the, the other route they used the A34500 on for these ultra long hauls was LA Singapore. I've done LA Hong Kong 
And that was the most excruciating thing I've ever done. I was, this was like in the 90s on Cathay in business class. And that, it was great. I mean, that's fine. But you sleep for eight hours, you still have another eight hours left. <laughs> you know? And on a, this might have been a, an urban legend, but I feel pretty confident in saying this. On the Singapore A340 500s, they had a place designated to store a body. Because if you're flying across the Pacific Ocean and someone dies halfway across, you've got nowhere to put it. So there was a place that was designed to take a body. If anyone wants to challenge me on that, if you listen and you're like, I know for a fact that's true or not true, please let me know. But I feel pretty confident that it's true. Oh, it could be. Out of uh, pure uh, tidbit, the current longest flight, if anyone is interested, is uh, Qantas from Sydney to Dallas. And I think that Emirates from uh, Dubai to LA is not far behind. So yeah, those have got to be long flights. Yeah, if you if you want to do long flights like I want, I've not done any of these two either. I really want to do once, although it it must be really painful. But I really want to do it once. (laughs) Talking talking about like incredible stories, uh, Greg, uh, you witnessed actually something that is not exactly talking about commercially (laughs) commercial aircraft, but SpaceX. Can you tell us a story about that? Yes, so I was fortunate to be invited onto NASA's SpaceX CRS-7 mission. Um, So uh, SpaceX, I'm sure most, if not all, your listeners are familiar with. Um, And so they they are currently running resupply missions to the ISS, um, and that's all organized through NASA. So NASA will basically pay SpaceX to do them and will help provide the facilities. They have a lot of free launch pads and um, infrastructure, obviously. Um, so NASA Social um, have been organizing events for quite a while. Uh, I think they've done about 100 events now. And the general idea is that they wanted to introduce NASA um, to more people than just the professional media. Um, so they've been inviting people, mostly those involved in social media for, for a while. And, uh, and this event um, uh, a little while back, a few weeks ago, was the first time that they invited foreign nationals uh, to one of these social events. Um, and the, the premise is uh, it's all organized around a certain launch, whether that's a satellite launch or an ISS launch, in this case, like I said, ISS and SpaceX. Um, and they just spend three or four days just um, opening up as much as they can. Uh, just, it was the Kennedy Space Center specifically that we had access to. And, uh, and they were really just trying to open up as much as possible to show us what goes on um, in NASA specifically for this launch, but also just to give us an idea of the history of NASA. So we were able to see some of the facilities where the tiles were manufactured that were used on the shuttle, for example, and to speak some of, to some of the QA engineers on the shuttle program, all the way through to people working on the very kind of bleeding edge of space travel at the moment. So you were getting access to places that the public definitely doesn't go. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we were taken around to the um, ISS uh, facility where the, the Kennedy Space Center is basically where everything comes together and then they launch it. So it's it, there's not all that much manufactured there from what I can understand, but it's the it's the assembly structure essentially. So it's where the shuttle was put together and it's where a lot of the space station components were put together before being placed into the shuttle for launch. Wow. So we got a lot of access to see the facility as well that takes place and obviously the launch facility as well. And this launch didn't go 100% according to plan, right? It didn't, no. I mean, using their um, 
that terminology, it was a non-nominal flight, which is non-nominal flight. One way of I'm it. so going to use that in <laughs> everyday conversation. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, I mean, obviously hugely unfortunate to, to all those involved. Um, fortunately, there, I mean, no casualties. They're unmanned flights um, taking provisions to the space station along with the science experiments and, uh, and other pieces of equipment. Um, but just under two minutes into flight, there was uh, an issue that was actually only the cause of it was only really revealed in the last week or so. Um, so Elon Musk uh, has been speaking out about this. Uh, they've had engineers looking into this for the last few weeks. And one of the struts, the internal struts, failed in the second stage. So at the point where the first stage was supposed to separate, just before that point, uh, a strut failed. Um, and one of the helium canisters basically came loose and caused depressurization. And there was essentially a large um, gases explosion. Wow. Uh, at about, I think it was about 45 kilometers into the air. You could actually see it from, from where we were. So you could we see were about, it. Yeah, we were about four miles from the launch pad, which sounds pretty far. And it's, I mean, as rockets go, it's a small one. They all refer to it as a baby rocket. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we could see it well up into you know, 30, 35, 40k in the air. And, Obviously, most of what we're seeing are the trails and, and some of the the, uh, the output from the rocket engines. Um, but we, we could just about make out you know, a cloud of, of gases. And it looked like it was a first stage separation, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Wow. So uh, if people wanted to see some of the, the photos you took and uh, the other stuff that you documented, where would they be able to see that? Uh, so I've been posting a few bits on Instagram. Um um, Greg underscore A on Instagram, um, but I've actually put together a, a photo story, sort of a journal of the, the trip there um, on exposure. So that's exposure.co, um, and I'll send you guys a little link to the show notes. Great, yeah, please do. Oh, that's a great, yeah, yeah, it's a great site, exposure.co. I have a website. It's very mm. nice to create uh, uh, portfolios, and yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, sure. yeah, I love it, and the guys behind it are great as well. They've, they've been involved in the, the web industry for a long time. They do great work, so I'd highly recommend it as well. So uh, going back to Earth, because I mean, space flights are still a bit. Uh, Science fiction, although we know that Virgin Galactic is trying to sell us that we're going to do that, and I'm sure Alex would be on the first flight. But um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, back. Uh, follow. I mean, uh, we just mentioned the story about the A380, uh, the new A380, and uh, linked to that, of course, as always, is kind of the the Europe versus the US in terms of manufacturers, but also obviously the eternal saga, which is the US versus the Middle East when it comes to careers. And one interesting story uh, that uh, I hadn't picked up in the, in the past few weeks is that, I don't know if you guys know the um, the, the Export-Import uh, Bank. It's basically a credit agency that helps uh, countries uh, that want to buy American products and then give a, a credit line, right? And it was supposedly originally created for countries which had difficulties to get access to credit to help them buy American products. Uh, but obviously the reason I'm mentioning that here is that it's one of the, it's one of the, the programs that's being used by uh, Emirates, for instance, to buy Boeing airplanes to the point that some people call this uh, export-import bank the Boeing's bank because it helps Boeing sell, sell aircraft. Actually, Europe, Europe has a similar credit agencies, actually, so that's not only American. But... 
The interesting bit is that they have been blocked to uh, by Senate, basically, by the Congress. They couldn't operate anymore. Uh, and it was a bit of war uh, behind the scenes because some of the people that actually blocked it, blocked its renewal, its license renewal, were basically claiming that it was helping these carriers too much. Oh, I forgot uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, obviously, Emirates is going to uh, reply that, you know, guys, we don't need it. They, they they use, I think, the credit line in the past two or three years were $3 billion. It's a credit line, right? It's not uh, just free money, but uh, because obviously Emirates has access to credit. But it's, it's interesting to follow because we'll talk a little bit later in the show about uh, still this saga. So... This is blocked for the moment. It goes to Senate, uh, I think, uh, this week, actually. Uh, and it's interesting because it's really, I think, Boeing now is pushing back, is pushing a lot to try to uh, get the license yeah, of this. Yeah, I would, uh, I would imagine that that's pretty important for them to have that uh, resolved quickly. Yeah, because I, countries like Ethiopia have been using it. These are countries that are, I'm, I'm guessing have a harder time getting access to credit in the market. So they need that kind of uh, agency to be able to fly, to buy in this uh, instance. Planes. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we mentioned in uh, in uh, episode 17 that United was not going anymore to uh, GFK. Uh, and we'll to talk a little bit about New York's airports now. And uh, one of the biggest pieces of news of this week was that the worst airport in the US, probably LaGuardia, <laughs> is going to be torn down and completely rebuilt. Are you this, rejoicing? This is fantastic. I've only flown into LaGuardia once, but its I don't think you'd find anybody in the world that would disagree when you say it's just a joke. That airport is so bad. And the fact that they're just saying, yeah, we're just going to knock the whole thing down and start again is, <laughs> I think, validation of that criticism. And I'm so happy because, you know what, I know for those who listen to this show, and I apologize sometimes for it, I'm a bit harsh with U.S. airports. But this is a, because it's the first time that you can hear that they will actually say, you know what? We're just going to destroy it and start it all over again. It said, actually, uh, the mayor Cuomo said, uh, it's not a plan. It's not a sketch. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's actually happening. And I love it because it's kind of, it sometimes feels in the US that, you know, they build some stuff on top and they refurbish some parts of airports. But this is a massive plan. And the renderings, I'll put some links in the show notes, are pretty cool. It looks like a really good airport, honestly. Now, if they get to do that, the plan they are actually trying to. Yeah, I, I the timeline is really impressive too. They think they're going to have it done by 2021. That's not a long time to completely rebuild an airport. Yeah. And the the renderings that they have, it looks quite a lot like the way that the Philadelphia airport is laid out with a long uh, kind of causeway th- running through the middle and then then piers of terminal of, of gates coming out from the uh, I think I basically described every airport in the world, but it, it does look quite a lot like Philadelphia Airport. So it's great. It's great. And the fact that I'm sure they ran into very little um, opposition to the, the necessity for this, and I hope that it uh, continues to be smooth sailing for them. I, it was funny that on the uh, the press event they did, they invited Joe Biden <laughs> because yeah. Joe Biden said uh, last year, that LaGuardia, you compare LaGuardia to a third world country airport. <laughs> yeah. So that was, <laughs> which tells you, even if the vice president says that this airport is so bad, it means that it was really bad. So um, I'm happy that they're rebuilding. Talking about, uh, so still talking about New York, uh, JFK, We, uh, you, I think you mentioned, Alex, in episode 12, that uh, JetBlue was looking into that very famous building of the T- T- TWA building to make it as an hotel. And actually, that's true. 
it's going to be a hotel. Apparently, the plans have been have been proposed, uh, and it looks there's no. I mean, there's barely some renderings now. Uh, that is it good news. This is great news, and I am glad that JetBlue got it because they, I think they will look after it. They're they're based at JFK, and I think they have a vested interest in main, maintaining it. I'm glad also, having read a few of the articles that we've been passing back and forth about the subject, that there is such a strong interest from conservationists, and especially architectural conservationists, to preserve as much of the, at least the spirit and uniqueness of this building. And it really is a wonderful building in any any development. They will be required to do so. So that that is hugely reassuring to me that this is going yeah, to be a and, and a part, part of the architects are actually the ones who did the uh, the Highline Hotel. And the Highline Hotel used to be a, a building that was also protected. And they did a great job into maintaining the structure, maintaining the spirit of it. So I, I'm happy to, to hear that these are the guys who actually will uh, redo this TWA because they, they have respect Absolutely. for what is existing. By the way, Greg, if you like photography, this is really a building you should try to get into because that, that is absolutely fantastic. It's, so yeah. you, do you know, you know that you're familiar with the building, Greg? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I need to give it a shot. It's uh, it's such a it's such a beautiful building. And I'm glad I'm glad I think that of all of the options that this that was proposed for this structure including knocking it down which is would be a crime. I I'm I think this is the best because it will get used yeah, exactly. It will get used. And uh, Greg, if you don't have access, we mentioned, I think it was at our last show, that JetBlue's uh, new lounge will have a direct view on it. So at least you can, uh, okay. on the rooftop, so at least you can take pictures from, from there, which is cool. yeah, I mean, good enough. For, yeah, and it's a nice time uh, as well. I've flown into, actually, mostly with Aer Lingus, actually. I, I do the old um, flight through Dublin and arrive in the US having pre-clear customs, which is great. Oh, and they um, go into the JetBlue terminal when they do that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, oh, so nice. That's JetBlue. a great facility. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! I, I, because my experience with GFK is not always that great. I mean, this is an airport we'll cover one day because there's a lot to say. It's a great airport and it's a bad airport at the same time. But yeah. apparently, so the whole the plan we just heard from Cuomo about LaGuardia is part of the bigger plan of. Uh, pushing the entire, I think it's called reimagining New York or something. And it's calling to not only, there will be also a grand master plan from GFK that will reveal at some point. They also, I mean, they're trying because they uh, they, they, there's a lot of stuff that could be done at, uh, for at GFK as well. It's not uh, the best airport in the world. Talking about airports in the US, um, we talked, so we talked about uh, the collusion that might have, might happen. So this, it's it's a debate. If there's collusion or not, uh, that's a big debate. That's the, the Department of Justice in the U.S. will look at it. One interesting article I found about on that topic is that it shows that there's a more and more concentration. I don't know because you guys fly in the U.S. So there's more and more concentration in uh, the U.S. in terms of how many airlines are in a single airport. It used to be much more diverse, and it looks like now there are airports are more and more uh, duopoly, so they have two two airlines versus four in the past, which tend to show that there's a lot of consolidation, but also might hint at less competition at some point. Because if you fly from an airport, because that's your home airport, and there's no other possibilities that these two, or even in some cases a single airline, that's not much of a competition. Have you seen that, guys? Absolutely. I think if you look at all of the major airports, you know, you refer to a one of the big airports as. So and so sub Miami American Airlines hub Chicago uh, United Airlines hub Dallas another American Airlines hub um, 
Denver. Actually, Denver is a bit of a hotly contested market right now. But yes, it is. Phoenix, U.S. Airways, uh, Charlotte, U.S. Airways, Philadelphia, U.S. Airways. So yeah, and then you you have bit part players around the rest that are just going there because they they kind of need to. But yeah, I, absolutely. And I think this goes hand in hand, although cannot be proven to be related to the allegations of possible collusion that we've covered in previous episodes. Yeah, exactly. Actually, uh, it's interesting you mentioned Denver because I think on the numbers, Denver is one of the only airports currently in the US where airline fees have dropped a little bit. On the other other airports, the price of your ticket has been increasing. So, you know, competition drives prices down. Yeah, and that's kind of the front line for competition and everybody seems to throw everything at that. It was Frontiers and Denver's and now Southwest have thrown a lot of time and energy into it. So, but it's getting... This is going to be an interesting thing to watch over the next five years, whether we're going to actually have to re-regulate or do something to stop the consolidation. Yeah. Uh, actually, there was an article in Skiff that said uh, that was really interesting about that. What, what what would it take to actually prove collusion? And of course, there, there was uh, in the past the Department of Justice uh, uh, investigations. And of course, it was very clear because there were clear remarks or you know phone calls that were recorded where airline executives clearly actually said something about collusion. This time, it's not that clear, but there's this word that keeps coming back, which I kind of like. It's called capacity discipline, <laughs> which, which is basically, well, you try to get in line and not to add too much seat capacity. So you kind of, it's, it's not I mean, no one can say it's collusion per se, but the fact that you don't try to eat your competitor means that discipline means that you're basically happy with the status quo. Uh, it remains to be seen if there is talks, you know, in the behind the scenes that can be uh, construed as collusion. But that's, I mean, the the numbers are in the numbers of uh, seat, seat increase capacity increase in the next uh, this year next year will be paltry. And so, so many of, I mean, a lot of the big U.S. airlines announced their quarterly results, uh, and some of them their annual results yesterday, and they, we're talking billions of dollars of profits. So there's something not quite right here. Yeah, exactly. And there's been uh, apparently there's an email. Nobody has actually the content of the email, at least that I know of. There's been an email, a thing from an executive an AA that apparently hints at something. There's also other remarks like. Oh, this other airline should be, you know, put back into its own place. Like, like, don't be too aggressive, guys. I mean, so I mean, it's interesting. We'll oh, see what happens. Uh, but there was one number about that that was really staggering because you just mentioned prices. Uh, we know that, for instance, uh, oil prices have come down, but ticket prices, at least the, the surcharge, has not come down. And uh, there's one number that I found staggering that will drive Alex mad. In 2007, airlines collected 2.45 billion. In non-fair receipts, so basically all the airline fees, there was it was worth two point forty-five billion in two thousand seven. In twenty fourteen, that was thirty-eight billion dollars. That is criminal. <laughs> I, I that is staggering that we've we have allowed them because there's no way that that correlates with passenger growth. It's impossible. So that we have allowed them to increase all of these ancillary fees. By that order of magnitude in a space of what seven years? Have you, Greg? Have you ever have you ever had issues with? I mean, obviously you don't you don't like paying these airline fees like we all do. But have you actually encountered places where you found they were actually really unfair to you because you travel in the U.S. or not? Um, I, I've 
wouldn't say I have actually. I mean, it's they've always seemed excessive, um, but I, I can't say that anything has necessarily been stood out to me as being particularly unfair. It's gotten to the point where we kind of like ex- we expect them. We know yeah. that they're there. They're 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 just part of flying life now, and it's just tragic. Actually, you know, I think it's a business model that you know the you you the flat the the the, the ticket fee is the high, the lowest possible one, and then you add everything you want on top. So you want a better seat, you want you know more leg room, you want food, you want luggage, you want this, you want that, you want headphones. Soon, maybe like Ryanair's uh, O'Leary, you want access to the bathroom, you'll have to pay for it or something. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it's, it comes with the territory. I think it's uh, it's interesting though that a lot of articles in the U.S say that US airlines have actually copied what European airlines are doing. It's it's interesting. Like EasyJet and Ryanair, obviously, are the ones that they are thinking about. But it just uh, takes one airline to introduce a new fee. They wait six weeks, and then everybody else jumps on it. Uh, jumps on it. Uh, there was a few. Uh, by the way, uh, talking about unfairness, there was a few articles. Uh, one what was, was really funny because this guy uh, was offered to upgrade his seat, and the seat like had no window, and you know, like they had him for like another fee, and he's unhappy about it. Other people, uh, there's a lot of. This is what I meant by unfair. I mean, and the airline wouldn't bosh. It said, "Oh, there was no window. It's not our fault." Like, yeah, you offer me an upgrade of my seat to go more in front of the plane. There's no window and you tell me that's okay. Or there's no recline or et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, talking about fees, another way to uh, to help when, when we try to get our lowest price. Um, Alex, you mentioned many times that one of the ways to do that was to play with a hidden city. But apparently you read something that BA is cracking down on that. Yes, so the, a hidden city is when you purchase a, a, a fare that has a layover in it. Um, but you have no intention of, of really taking the whole fare. So, for example, um, you could do London – or let's say – let me think of a good example. Okay, so Dublin, San Francisco, Dublin will be cheaper than London, San Francisco, London because of all those silly fees that we get lumbered with as Brits. Um, if you found one of those fares and you found that the flight went um, – London, Dublin, San Francisco, London, Dublin. Uh, but you lived in London and you didn't take that last leg from London to Dublin. Uh, but you're going, oh, great, I saved 300 pounds. Well, the airlines don't like it when you do that. Uh, so they they try and threaten you with things like they will cancel your return flight. So obviously you don't want to do this halfway through your journey. It's only when you're coming back. Uh, avoiding your frequent flyer rewards or anything that you would have earned. And I've also heard reports of ha- people having their entire f- status. Uh, so if you're a gold card holder, removed for doing this because it's technically against the contract of carriage. These guys, British Airways apparently, allegedly, are going to start issuing bills for you to pay the difference in the fare. <laughs> My God. Now... <laughs> I think this is ridiculous because, and it's not just PA, every airline does this. They created this problem in the first place. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> By yeah. having all of these, this total disparity in, in fees. And you read the feedback from these, the articles that were covering this particular issue. And, and it's universal scorn on the airlines saying, you, you know, why should it be illegal to get off your flight midway? Carriers stop ripping the customer off and this will stop. Um, get a grip. <laughs> you created this one. <laughs> if you want to fix it, then eliminate it. Going after the passenger is going to create nothing but a PR train wreck. 
I think it just it also highlights the fact that pricing just is in no way linked to really to distance traveled or to the service itself. It's it's really linked to a whole other set of factors. But it's it's clear that you're essentially saving them money because you're not getting on that last flight. But that never gets factored into the pricing. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what 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 created the whole thing for BA and they're running currently. And I think you had sent me Alex one of these fairs uh, because there are websites we can and forums you can find these crazy fairs. They are actually running a currently running a program where it's very cheap to fly from Germany to I think Asia or something, mm-hmm. and uh, it's much cheaper to fly there than to fly from London. And they're trying to make it hard for people to to cheat. And if they say it's because they want to fight the uh, Middle Eastern airlines. I don't know. But, but that's uh, anyway. not, I think that's uh, that's not the passenger's problem. I agree. Uh, it's it's frustrating. I don't think I've ha- heard a good answer to this. And I think it just – it shows the anachronistic structure of airline fares and, and the way that, that, that they're priced. So it's a very frustrating thing. Talking about one of the, the airlines that I really don't uh, like, United. <laughs> I'm sorry. I keep talking about United as an airline that I don't like. But there were some remarks by the CEO that were pretty funny, Alex, right? Yeah, this is bizarre, absolutely bizarre. And this was in uh, Corporate Travel magazine. And he spoke about a few things that I think kind of piqued both of our interests. Uh, he, he said initially that they think that they're going to eliminate their international first class product, which actually might, I think you said this, Paul, makes some instance in some cases or makes sense in some instances because it doesn't make money for them. Um, they will not be retrofitting it to their older airplanes. It takes a lot of real estate and people aren't willing to pay for it. But in the same breath, uh, the Etihad residence, which is $36,000 from New York to Abu Dhabi, they've Etihad to come out and say, it's a huge success and we wish we had more of them. So I don't know who's right. I'm guessing <laughs> Etihad. He made another comment in the same, this is um, the CEO of, of United on the A380. And I love this. He said, quote, that is a product for state subsidized airlines or airlines that have it and wish they didn't. So that was obviously aimed in the Middle Eastern carriers, but he would not have made friends with his Star Alliance partner, Singapore Airlines or Qantas or anybody else that has the A380 who exactly. does not wish to be associated as a state subsidized airline, subsidized airline. So a bizarre, childish statement. But then, then again, then again, uh, United is one of the airlines that have really absolutely no ties with the Middle East. I mean, we know the American has some ties with the Etihad. I mean, there's the other airlines have might have you know, in part as part of their alliance. Uh, United is very lonely there, so maybe that's why he's shouting that much. And they, they keep making crazy decision after crazy decision. First, the whole we're going to leave JFK all of a sudden in and its entirety. Then all this weird kind of gesticulation from the pulpit. I don't know what the hell they're doing. And they're <laughs> abandoning their passengers and all kind of, Oh, and then the, this one, this little story that I stumbled upon. The Aviation Herald, avherald.com is a great website for if you're really into the to aviation. It's quite uh, detailed and technical, but that's not a bad thing. Apparently on the 24th of June, a uh, 767 United 767 flying t- from Houston to to Munich. The captain disposed of bullets down a toilet. <laughs> uh, and it says was en route when the captain disposed of ten bullets in his possession into the toilet. 
that's a, staggering for somebody who's competent enough, and I'm sure he, was, he or she was perfectly. I think she. Was she. I think. I think the story was that she forgot to do that before taking off, and it's forbidden to bring live ammunition in Germany. And she knew that she would have been caught. So instead of having to file a report, uh, she just decided to dump them in, in the toilets, which obviously then created a massive problem because I think the plane had to be uh, secluded and then uh, some fire brigade had to kind of look at the waste disposal, et cetera, et cetera. They had, to fi- they had to empty the waste tanks and find all 10 bullets. <laughs> That's a nice job. I hope that the they made the pilot do that. <laughs> Extraordinary, <laughs> and that's to add up on the other problems. I mean, that's a small story, but they add up on the other problems that United has been having in the past weeks. Actually, to the point that uh, two major outlets, uh, Bloomberg was one, called uh, this United Hell because they had, you know, you remember we were actually having the show when suddenly all the planes were grounded because apparently some router was faulty. There's been the stories about people being abandoned in barracks, etc., 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 and but. Sadly, maybe so. Uh, you can't argue. That's the quote. Actually, you can't argue with stock price performance. And you know, even though all these problems happen, the stock keeps rising. And why would you replace a CEO like the one, uh, like the one we just mentioned, if the stock price is still rising? That's the, that's the delicious irony of capitalism, isn't it? Yeah, right. The, yeah, the, you're right. I mean, they've they've been pouring in great numbers. Um, I think that there was about three or four years ago quite a lot of pressure on. The current CEO due to stock prices, but you know, as everybody else is doing, they're posting record numbers. Oil prices are low, and as you say, why, why rock the boat, even if your passengers hate you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they still have. And interestingly enough, uh, almost contradictorily, they, you know, we mentioned that they've been pushing for some new uh, clubs, or new uh, lounges in the well. So they actually are investing. There's also been a story on a designer that they've actually invested in new uh, amenity kits. So they're in a premium class. They're actually offering better products. Like almost, I mean, when you look at the, at the amenity kits, they almost look like this Middle Eastern they, they keep complaining about. I mean, it's really <laughs> unique. So it's, it's. I mean, well, I, I'm not a big fan of the airline because of the passenger experience and because they've always had problems with it, although I'm a, I have status in Star Alliance and I start to avoid them. I would love to for them to prove me, prove me wrong, although I'm not uh, I'm not sure they will eventually. But one of the things they also have an issue with is like unions. So they 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 have been unable to reach um, a conclusion to their negotiation with their flight attendants union. Uh, and the same thing is actually happening uh, for Delta. <laughs> and Delta, it's going. It's something I don't know. I wanted to have your take, Alex, because Delta basically said that they were cancel an order or four billion dollars worth of aircraft to Boeing and Embraer just because they were not able to reach an agreement with the union. What do you think about this? <laughs> I think it I mean I think it's a real shame for Delta as well as it is for Boeing and Embraer. That's an ex- and I, I wonder how much of this is posturing in the broader yeah. disagreement with their unions, but also I think it shows the clout that aviation unions have in the US. I know that Southwest are having a massive years-long protracted battle with their flight attendance union, and it's causing them to kind of uh, really lose sight of of the more important things like passenger experience. But it's it's gotten to the point where it's getting a little bit ridiculous. And this is only going to get worse with consolidation. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. Talking about uh, about Delta very quickly because we've been tracking that story. Apparently, Delta is eyeing to buy a stake in Skymark, which is that Japanese airline which is was close to bankruptcy, the one who had bought the A380 but couldn't actually <laughs> buy them in the end. Uh, interesting. Uh, it seems that they are okay to expand internationally there, as long as it's not in the Middle East or something. <laughs> Um, talking about unions, uh, back to Europe. So unions have been also an issue with Air France. I used to fly Air France a lot. Uh, so Air France has this particular, you have to understand Air France. Air France has this particular model. I'm not talking about unions, I'm talking about the model. It's a feeder model. So Air France has been highly protective of its own market. Uh, and the model is basically bring all the small planes to Paris. And from Paris, you fly everywhere in the world. That's always been the kind of the motto from Air France. And uh, the, uh, both the pilots and the unions, uh, so far, both the management and the unions are still kind of stuck on that model which is why, coming back to, remember, we talked about the low-cost uh, Transavia. They, they, this is why it's going nowhere because the unions are fighting and also kind of the, the management is fighting against it because they still dream of that model of having the feeder, you know, so the towards, uh, towards Paris. So uh, there's been a lot of uh, problems with that. Uh, but interestingly enough, although I say that, recently uh, Air France has kind of expanded its co-chair with Etihad. So... Coming back to what we said before about the U.S. airlines, it seems that American Airlines is kind of okay with Etihad. Air France KLM is kind of opening up with Etihad. Uh, Alitalia, it could have been triggered by the fact that Alitalia kind of decided not to renew its partnership agreement with Air France KLM. It started refocusing on Italy. But still, they're kind of being opening up to, which, which is why I mentioned before, Lufthansa United seems to be kind of lonely now because they don't have anyone to talk to. In the yeah, they're, they're really kind of isolating themselves. But... Isn't Alitalia, don't they have investment from... Yes, yeah, exactly. That's what I don't understand. So I went and I looked for it. So Alitalia is, I mean, Air France KLM did buy a stake in Alitalia. The other, of course, Etihad has been bought, uh, bought a big stake in Alitalia. But if you go on the corporate website from corporatealitalia.it, it's their piece of news dates from May. It says, Alitalia today announced that it will not renew its partnership agreement with and joint venture agreements with Air France KLM. By 2017. So that's interesting. So they they uh, Etihad buys 49% of Alitalia on the 1st of January. And then a few months later, they say they're not going to renew with Air France. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm pretty sure those things are not unrelated. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Talking about, still talking about Etihad, uh, Etihad has agreed to sell its stake uh, in uh, Erlingus. Uh, so basically, Erlingus is now kind of okay because Ryanair said well, yes as well. I mean, they've got a force, but they said yes. So that yeah, story so that, seems yeah, to that, be coming. That, that's a pretty much a done deal now. All of the roadblocks seem out of the way. The, the government stake in Erlingus, Ryanair massively grudgingly said that they would sell their stake. So I think that's just a formality now that, that Erlingus is part of the ever growing IAG portfolio of airlines. Yeah, it's not about airline. I mean, uh, Greg, you mentioned you flew them. How, how are they? Because I never flown them. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, it's it's not a remarkable service. It's it works for me. It was really convenient. As I said, I've I've been using to fly to New York from Bristol, and the stopover in Dublin is is ideal just because of the US pre clearance. Um, it just makes it so much nicer. I mean, flying to JFK uh, the last few years, and then arriving late at night, and then having an hour, two hours, sometimes even up to three hours of queues for immigration is just the worst. So actually pre-clearing yes. in Dublin was really a breath of fresh air. However, I have to say that 
as of earlier this year, JFK and a number of, of major U.S. airports have implemented much, much better immigration uh, systems. It really yeah. is way better it's in the so much brief better, experiences yeah. that I've had. Yeah. Yeah, they, they've introduced the uh, these uh, these kind of kiosk, electronic kiosk, when everything is basically a touchscreen experience. The last time I was in New York was that. It was much faster, yeah. indeed. And they separate so. out first-time Esters versus returning Esters. So if you're returning, Correct. the process is faster. Uh, you, you go through the machine, as you say, that takes maybe 30 seconds, and then you have a quick interview and then you're straight through. I've been that's through exactly. like five, five minutes, 10 minutes in that. So that's yeah, great. exactly. Me too. I was, yeah. I was really staggered. That's, that's a very, very... Big improvement in New York, yeah. uh, uh, and I mean, I, I'm sure in other in other uh, airports in the US, but that's a huge improvement. Though, I would really welcome pre-clearance in the UK too. Um, well, it's I'm coming, gonna, isn't it? Yes, it's coming. Yeah. Uh, you're right, actually, Alex. It's coming, actually. Yeah, finally. And Abu, Dhabi, Abu Dhabi has it, <laughs> of course. Uh, <laughs> and the Aer Lingus have transatlantic Wi-Fi now, don't they? On their A330s. Yeah, they do. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Not many airlines have that. Yeah, I mean, I, have, I really have no complaints with the service. With the price, the convenience, as I said, with the pre-clearance especially, it, it's fine. It's, it's really nothing to write home about, but that's, I'm quite happy with what I've got with, for what I've paid. <laughs> Interestingly, actually, uh, talking about that, talking about competition, Etihad uh, has actually said that they won't actually uh, add any new routes to the U.S. in the next 24 months. Uh, that's that's, a that's complete quite country. a statement. Yeah, it's got a statement. If you compare that to what Emirates and Qatar are doing, it's uh, they, they they seem to be expanding and trying to buy stakes of other airlines mm. around. That's I guess that's their main strategy, and maybe also they kind of give it as a gift of goodwill to the U.S. Probably because they they may be planning something with American Airlines. I don't know. Ah, good that. point. But uh, there was a, there was very there was a, an article in the Economist that I really like to visit Oped, and it said that. Uh, if America was really ser- serious about the issue of competition, it could deal with it with a stroke, open up the domestic aviation market to foreign competition, allow Ryanair, Emirates, and the like to fly whichever r- routes they want. <laughs> oh, yeah. Game over. <laughs> Not only game over, but that would be actually really interesting. And the same should apply, actually, in Europe. Uh, I, would, I, w- I would love to see that. But talking about Ryanair. So Ryanair, uh, the two things that were staggering, as usual, were used with the Ryanair. Once, the first one is that... Ryanair declared that sites like Expedia, so you know these flight comparisons website that you might use, are make no sense and shouldn't exist. Uh, O'Leary actually called, but interesting because you know up to that point you say wait wait whatever, but then O'Leary said okay, in order to disrupt these kind of uh, price comparison website, what we should do we should all the websites, so British Airways, Iberia, Air France, KLM, Lufthansa, EasyJet, should display each other prices. What? Yes, he actually said that. He said, he offered, he said, okay, you can actually put, of course, he knows because he's very cheap. We put each other prices on on our own websites, thus we destroy uh, the uh, the comparison websites. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing was staggering that they did, that Ryder did, they actually, so they, they were, they pulled out of an airport in Denmark <laughs> because... The, the, the Danish authorities uh, accepted that their labor, the unions could strike. So they said, okay, you know, you don't want us, we're just leaving. What do you wow. think about that? That's that's uh, typical Ryanair hyperbole, isn't it? <laughs> it's, the, it's always the nuclear option. They don't, there's no kind of finesse or subtlety with them. Yeah, absolutely none. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the airport, if you're interested, is Bilund, which is where the Lego, the big Lego land is built. So if you have kids, you cannot go with Ryanair now because Ryanair has pulled out of the country entirely, waiting for this to be uh, to be resolved. 
Talking about an airport that is another airport that we covered is very cheap is Ciudad Airport. Why didn't we buy it, Alex? I don't know why we didn't buy it. Now that I've seen the price, so this is the airport we've we've spoken about a few times uh, over the show, which is a ghost airport. It was cost billions of euros to make, probably almost all taxpayer money. In a remote part, uh, I think the nearest major city was Valencia, and it was still hours away from that. No commercial flight ever landed there. I think we said that the markings were wrong, so the airplanes couldn't turn properly. It was just sold to a uh, a Chinese investment group for ten thousand euros. That's seven thousand uh, pounds. There was <laughs> there was one bidder. <laughs> uh, pardon me, yeah, south of Madrid, in between Madrid and Valencia. So yeah, uh, um, they are going to make it an entry point for Chinese companies coming into Europe. I'm not 100 percent sure whether that what that means if it's going to be a cargo airport uh, or or something like that. But um, that's staggering. I, I don't even understand how that happens. But there, the crazy thing is, this isn't the only ghost airport. In Spain. No, you remember there was the other one we mentioned. It was the uh, Ciudad Real Central or something. Yeah, where Ca- the uh, Castellon. Castellon. I think was, this is where uh, Top Gear did that episode. Yeah, yeah. They were running on the uh, the track, right? Cast- <laughs> I think this one also has no flights or something. Maybe one or something. Yeah, yeah. They have like one or two, but this is another billion dollar uh, airport. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, these are politicians that want to boast or something. Isn't isn't that the one, by the way, the one you just mentioned? Is that the one that had a big statue in front of it or something? I, th- I think, think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. these are attractive airports. They're well made and it's a boondoggle of the first order. But yes, it's been bought. I have no idea what they're going to do with it. It's, it's very vague. But, yeah, uh, but $10,000 is really like a bargain, Trump right? Change, right? They tried, I think they tried to sell they sell it from down from 1 billion to 40 million uh, euros and still no one wanted to buy it. So, yeah, they well. said, oh, we're going to have to invest a little bit of money to get it going. But it's like, you know what? With $10,000 purchase price, you got a little bit of change to play with. Uh, we should have outbidded them and record the show from there, Alex. Yeah, from our uh, own airport. <laughs> yes, exactly. I would have done my my house there. It's just, I mean, look, at the runway every morning. That's the best look in the world. Uh, last week, the, no, sorry, last episode, the, 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 the airport was Athens. And I just wanted to quickly mention this because it's kind of ironic with all that happens in Greece. The biggest tax evader in Greece is the company that runs the airport. Mm-hmm. They've have they have not paid VAT for more than twenty years. What? <laughs> so, the, which is probably half a billion euros or something. And if you and all the other areas, which outstanding payments, social security that was not paid, etc., that might lead to a billion euros of arrears. The irony: the company is German. Oh, that you couldn't <laughs> write that. That's fantastic. Anyway, uh, other airport, other issues. Uh, Alex, there was a few, I think it was a year ago, was it, when the BA flight took off from London and had suddenly the engine kind of almost exploded or something? Yeah, I believe it or not, it was two years ago. It was May 2013. It was a A319 going from Heathrow to Oslo, and uh, it lost an engine very shortly after takeoff. And the captain did a phenomenal job of of landing it. There were no injuries um, and the plane uh, made a safe landing. But it turns out that 
an issue that had been previously identified with the engine was sent in for maintenance, but the the wrong engine was worked on, and so the problem was never uh, never addressed. And it was basically the 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 cowling, the cover on the engine had been left undone, and that caused um, all kinds of problems. And there was never identified that the the cowling was still unlatched when the plane take off the next day. So that's uh, the worst part. Is yeah, yeah, I was about to say that. That, quote unquote, several passengers said that they tried to tell the cabin crew that there was a substantial amount of fluid leaking from the right engine because the cowling hadn't been closed. But that information was never passed on to the flight deck, uh, who I'm sure would have done something, i.e. not taken off. So that's a pretty worrying uh, communication break. You had an experience with that, didn't you, Paul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you were about to take off. It was, uh, I think it was an Embraer. We were about to take off. So many passengers are shouting next to the engine that there was something leaking. He shouts so so strongly that the the flight attendant had to go and then called the pilot, stop the engines. We had to be uh, dragged back to a parking position. We switched planes, etc. So, yeah, it was worth. I mean, I'm sure that the, if the pilot decided to stop and to change aircraft the fact that the passengers saw it it was not just to reassure the passengers it was something actually going on wow. so yeah so yeah exactly talking about so when that ba flight came back there was a lot of debris i mean the the the, the engine was almost uh, falling apart when it was landing and talking of falling apart there's been a very quickly a story that uh, there's uh, a, a part of a 777 fell over a shanghai suburb like uh, a week ago <laughs> Partly from Air France flight. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's not really a laughing matter because it's not every day that you have a big piece of an air of of a Boeing seven 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 that just kind of this decides to leave the aircraft and crash on a neighborhood. Jeez. Uh, anyway, uh, so the uh, Boeing is asked to do reviews of all the, the aircrafts. Obviously, uh, other story. I know we have a lot of story. Another story is is Heathrow. Um, so. I don't know if you, Greg, you fly from Heathrow, but there's apparently going to be a third runway, although this is uh, will be done by 2080 if we look at the current number of oppositions. And Heathrow is not making it easier either because Heathrow management basically said that, you know, you remember the, the, the commission that said, okay, you'll have your third runway, said that to get your third runway, they had to promise to never build a fourth one. Heathrow doesn't want that. They had to stop flights from 11.30 p.m. to 6 a.m., Ether doesn't want that, and understandably so, because a lot of flights are coming in from Singapore or Hong Kong at a very early time in the day. So they say, if we have to start only operations at 6 a.m., that we will lose business because of that. So basically, just to see that it's not going to be an easy fight and we probably won't have any third runway in our lifetime. Uh, another thing, though, that happened at Ether, and I don't know if you've seen that, guys, they were like some protesters. That decided to uh, go on the runway. I think I don't know if it was twenty seven R, and they to just block it because they were uh, saying. I think the, the name of the group is called Plain Stupid or something, mm-hmm. and they were uh, accusing planes to make a lot of problem with climate change. Uh, but don't you do, did you agree with what they did? I mean, climate change is one topic that we can obviously, and we know planes have a big problem with it. But what they did was it. dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous to themselves, dangerous to people on um, on those airplanes that were trying to take off or land. You know, there's better ways and safer ways to make your point. I don't think anybody would take these guys seriously after pulling such a crazy stunt. 
But let's let's be honest, though. Although I agree with that statement you just said, there is clearly all. I mean, planes are becoming more fuel efficient. Routes are becoming more fuel efficient. Their biofuels are being tested. But I mean, there is still a problem with climate change. Yeah, I don't think that's. I don't think it's the issue. To it's it's a way to act to block the runway for seven hours. But I mean, yeah, there's still a problem. Uh, going to the innovation part of the show to respond to that, to respond to these challenges of climate change. One of the one of the uh, solutions, one of the tests, has been the solar impulse. You know that big, big, huge bird that is flying around the world with only batteries. It's a Tesla of the skies. Only that between Japan and Hawaii, which was its longest uh, flight path, the batteries overheated and basically are rendered useless and they have to replace them so the flight is stuck and worse worse of it is that they have to find a new funding of 20 million euros to replace them wow those are some expensive batteries yes it's a bit sad because it's kind of a dream i mean it's very early in the days of having a full electrical plane but it's uh the the flight around the world has been stopped because and uh, i know that uh picard which is the who is the the main uh, person in that program has come back to Switzerland to try to find that money uh, to finish the round-the-world trip. But talking about uh, another aircraft that is closer to being achieved is the Airbus E-Fan. That's something you saw, right, Alex, or not? No, I haven't seen it in, in person. Someone was telling me they saw it at either Farnborough or Paris. I've seen it, I, I've seen it at Farnborough. Yeah, I've seen it at Farnborough. And then it but I've seen it from afar. noise. Yeah, so apparently, so this is a big story. We're not going to go into the details, but it's been the first electric plane that has crossed the channel. So the channel is between France and the UK. So that's a good thing because the first electric plane, but apparently some French guy did, had another plane. It went went gorilla and flew flew the first plane before Airbus and Airbus now is furious or something. I don't know the story, but anyway, so there's hope into electrical planes. Uh, but another plane you spotted, that's that's the one I wanted to see. You spotted a story about, uh, I didn't know anything about it. What's the name of this? Kegel or something? What is that? Uh, Bert Rutan's new airplane. Yeah, tell me more about that. Because- so, Bert Rutan is is an aviation legend. He is a pioneer. There are not enough superlatives in the world to describe this man. He has designed and built and flown seventy five different types of airplanes. Some of them have revolutionized the way that we fly, but they're so out there in their design they look nothing like a standard airplane almost all of them so the very easy the long easy um the uh uh boomerang which had a a kind of cantilevered wing that was a diagonal wing quite difficult to describe uh voyager which is now hanging in the national air and space museum the spaceship one which is what is eventually turned into virgin galactic i mean the man is revolutionary anyway a couple of years ago he retired because he couldn't get his medical his, uh, his uh, the cl- medical clearance to fly anymore because he's 72 years old. So he retired and said, I'm, I'm going to go live in, uh, in Idaho. But about a week ago, he came out of the woodwork and said that he is designing his very last airplane and it will be for his personal use. And it's called the Ski Gull. And some of the The little details about this plane are extraordinary. It can take off and land on almost any surface. Asphalt runway, grass, a rocky beach, water, including like heavy ocean swells and snow. 
um, and that's also including salt water. And the way that it does it, it's got this kind of weird undercarriage. It's got a, a retractable wheel and ski combination and with hydraulics built in so it can absorb any undulating surface or landing on waves. It can take off in 430 feet of, of, uh, of runway, which is incredible. It can, it can also fly at 140 knots for 2,500 miles. That, wow. That, that's, it's just amazing. I mean, the guy is... So he's, be, he's, so he's building a single one, right? He's building one just for himself. It's, a, it's tandem seating for him and his wife. Wow. <laughs> just because he can. I mean, if you, there was a wonderful uh, documentary that this Discovery Channel did about 10 years ago, right when the, uh, the Ansari X Prize was, was being contested. Um, and I will post a link to it in the show notes. It's well worth going. The man is just a genius. It's he, uh, read this article. Go read everything you can find about Bert Rutan. He's an amazing guy. Uh, talking about documentaries, Greg, you've seen. I think Alex told me you've seen the the documentary is nar- that is narrated by Harrison Ford. Yeah, Have you? yeah, living how, in the age of airplanes. So how is that? It's great. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think one review said it's it's an ode to aviation, and I think that really just sums it up quite nicely. It's um. It's beautifully shot. Uh, cinematography is fantastic. There's some amazing shots, time-lapse shots of, of airports, of um, aerial photography. Um, and it it really focuses on not so much the, the mechanical um, aspect of flight, but more of the, the way that it's changed it's human society and, and the, the way we live, I think, more than anything. Um, the thing it focuses on to begin with is looking at the average speed of humans over the the, the time that we've existed, so the last 200,000 years, how fast we've been able to move, uh, and just this ridiculous spike on that graph in the last century, really, where we've actually been able to exceed you know, five, six miles an hour as, as like an average speed of, of, of locomotion, I guess. Um, and it, it really just discusses, well, presents the the way that aviation has helped shape uh, the modern worlds in the last century or so. Uh, and it's it's great. It's just under an hour long. It's, um, as I said, just a, a visual masterpiece, really, that, that's just thoroughly enjoyable. I'm not sure, Alex, if there's a release date in the UK yet. They just haven't announced anything yet, from what I can see. Because you, you've, seen, you've seen the US, right? Yeah, so it's in about yeah. 25 US theatres um, across the US in general. I saw it in, in New York, in Queens, um, at the New York Hall of Science. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit sporadic uh, in terms of where, where it's played. I think there's a few places in Canada as well, but in terms of, of Europe and, and outside of the US, they haven't yet announced anything as far as I know. Oh, well. Uh, oh, do you know that where they have it? On Emirates. Oh, really? No way. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, God, these guys. I mean, I have to fly Emirates within the next two months. <laughs> That's, it's, it is frustratingly difficult to find. I would love to see this film. I mean, eventually it will arrive at a small screen. I mean, I think, who, who's, is it Discovery or... Uh, National or Geographic. Nat Geo, yeah. Nat Geo is helping. So at some point, you know, it will get on a, on a channel. Though I'm sure it's good to see in a large screen. Because uh, like you just said, the cinematography looks uh, pretty impressive. So. Yeah. 
I, I hope it comes to at least a few major cities in Europe, including uh, the UK in London. Uh, you, you just so we just mentioned the you know the crazy plane from Alex and then uh, Emirates, which is also kind of other type of nice seating. And then there's this patent. There's the other story everybody's been talking about in the past two weeks is this new seat patent by. Uh, what's the name of this French company? Zodiac. I forgot. Zodiac. Thank you, which created this kind of hexagon. So, if you basically, in order to to have more passengers per square feet in a plane, there's not much solution at some point. So, what they do now with that pat, it's only a patent, but they they make it as you facing people one one seat after the other. One seat is front facing, the other is backward facing. One front facing. So, it's horrible. It is awful. It just looks. I mean, if, if if you have your family in front of you, that's okay. But if you have to be for eight hours in a flight, and I mean, the idea is, since you don't have to be shoulder to shoulder, you can basically cramp more seats in the same area because you know you can just uh, your your feet take less space. But still, you have to awkwardly look at someone for the eight hours in front of you. Oh, no way. No. As described in some of these articles, is nightmarish. <laughs> I think it's. I mean, it's I, important to have some, some space for your feet as well. I mean, I, I've got to move my feet out to the side. I, I usually get an aisle seat so I can stretch my legs out. I think that's kind of important as well. You can't cram your feet into a box and leave them there for yeah. seven hours. The, the, I mean, and you had a bad experience with that because you had a blood clot. Yeah, that doesn't so, help. Well, yeah. you, need, you know, you had. <laughs> And, but also, uh, I, I'm not sure if these patents take into account the fact that planes have to have an evacuation time in terms of accident that has to be very quick. Because these layouts sometimes feel so complex that to escape, if you're on the, on the window seat and you, there's a fire, and you need to escape the plane very quickly, and then you have to go through like an old labyrinth to go out. I'm not sure they will actually, the patent will ever come to reality. But anyway, this is just a patent, but that's one of the stories. The other story... That was really, and I'm sure guys have read it. The other story was a Rolling Stone feature of Ben Schlapping. Have you read that, guys? Yeah. It's, I mean, I've been following Ben for a few years now. So he's that guy who basically lives the high life in planes. He's, he's so good at understanding RMI's program and how to get your frequent flyer miles that he's been living as an experiment for now almost a full year, basically only traveling first class around the world. Uh, but the, this feature is just out of this world because I, there's some stuff I knew, but like the fact that he was banned from United, I mean, stuff like that. I mean, you guys should really, really, if you haven't, uh, it's it's just what what do you, would you do that, Alex? Would you go into if you, let's say you had no family, no obligations, uh, would you go so hardcore into trying to get all your deals and fly in first class all around the world? I would love to. I don't know if I'm mathematically inclined enough to be able to spot the discrepancies and patterns that Ben is so adept at. Uh, uh, exploiting in a good way. Uh, I have friends that that do and are very very good at this, and who also happen to be, you know, software engineers, and so they have the mind to kind of analyze large swaths of data and, and understand it. But yeah, I think it's 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 why not? It's very cool. <laughs> yeah, and there's been some commentary after this that oh, he's gaming the system, and I don't think he's actually gaming the system. It's just someone, besides being very smart about it, he's just someone that has basically. I mean, you and me, and Greg as well. We have to. Ha we have some constraints when you take a flight. 
I cannot take a flight. Oh, there's a good deal in two hours at Ethereum. I've got to leave to, I don't know, Luanda. And then from Luanda, I'm going to Dubai. And then from Dubai, I'm going to Moscow. I mean, I wish sometimes I could have you know that freedom, but we don't. As, as soon as you have a total freedom of your time and you can just go and hunt for the deals, of course, added with the smarts that he has and noticing the numbers, I mean, it's not even gaming the system. It's just like making that for a living. And I... I actually don't even think that airlines should be uh, mad about it because there's there are not that many. And if you look at his photography of of, of most of the airlines, he has an account on Instagram which is pretty well followed. It's it puts the airline in a very good light, actually. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. And the, the interesting fact, he's actually a millionaire out of this because he, he out of his you know posts on his blog, I think he posts six times a day, et cetera. He's become a millionaire just not only he enjoys the high life in flying and being in first class, but also makes money out of it. So no, good, good for him. him. Yeah, good for him. So do you, do, you, do you track your miles religiously, Greg? Uh, I really don't, to be completely honest. <laughs> <laughs> but you, get out of, you get out of this have, show. <laughs> you do have some good strategies that I've actually picked your brains about about the most efficient way to not have to be loyal to an alliance or an airline, but maximize your miles through things like, um, is it Starwood that you use, the Starwood card? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I pretty much pay for most of my own flights. They're not business flights. They're not usually work flights. So I'm usually constrained by cost. So I really just shop around for the best deals. And if the flight's £200 cheaper with a different airline, I'll generally do that. I'm not super loyal. Um, so yeah, I've just been trying to find ways of being able to actually put all my points in certain pots without having to stick with a certain airline or or grouping of airlines. So um, I've used Alaska for a while uh, in the US because they have, a, since they don't actually fly that many routes themselves, they're quite constrained to a smaller area. Uh, they have good partnerships with a lot of airlines, including Emirates. Um, and yeah, actually, uh, to Ben Schlappig, if you read his blog, keeps mentioning Alaska as one of the good ways mm. to make a good, good, good deals. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's really useful. And then, and, and outside of that, as, as Alex mentioned, I use the Starwood Points uh, program SPG. I've rarely stayed in their hotels. I have to say, when I have, they've been great. Uh, I'm not, I don't stay in hotels all that often. Um, but I've actually amassed a lot of points through them, through uh, credit cards and, and all that sort of thing. And the they will transfer points one to one for miles with about seventy airlines. So that's incredible. If, if you oh, have wow. thirty thousand points on your card and you want to put twenty thousand on Emirates and ten thousand on AA, then you can just transfer them straight across one to one. Oh, that's actually very clever. Yeah. I, you see, I'm not that good. I mean, I, I I do my calculation according to my loyalty existing freaking buyer programs. Never thought about this. This is really good because transferring miles can be sometimes be very excessively expensive. Yes. So, uh, wow. Yeah, you don't pay anything and they actually often will have deals where they'll actually give you extra miles for the transfer. So at the moment, they're doing like a 5,000-mile bonus. <laughs> so if you transfer more than 20,000 out, they'll just throw another 5,000 in the pot, which is great. So yeah, no complaints with that. I should totally look into that, Alex. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you for the tip. <laughs> it's actually very good. Uh, I mean, talking about premium class, I mean, uh, very quickly, because I know we don't have that much time. 
so BA has released is seven because Alex flew flew BA like now two months a month ago two months ago already now oh, it's been time flies. So and you were kind of happy with that experience. B has just released uh, the seven eighty seven Dreamliner Dash Nine uh, layout, and they are keeping the first class, which is a good, which is a sign because we, you said earlier that the CEO for United said, "Oh, international first class is to be ditched." Apparently, B must know something and must have somewhere else when it's actually worth it because they're keeping. The, uh, the 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 first class. Uh, it's going to be probably the very similar to the first class you've experienced, uh, Alex. Uh, that I've never experienced. I wish I will. Having, <laughs> looking at these pictures, it's actually not that different from what they have in their seven forty sevens. Yep. Even though that's ten years old, or not ten years old. Pardon me, five years old. They've got the same uh, window blinds that I was so enamored with. It looks like the lighting controls and the remote are in the same place. It's just a a refreshed version of a, of an already what I thought was a very good product. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's one. The other one that the other announcement this week was made, and I've obviously seen other designer, which is your get to go site if you want to know about premium what happens in the front of the cabin. Uh, Swiss uh, has just also released a few images of these seven 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 three hundred extended range ER. The first class looks really amazing. They, <laughs> I really wanted the whole cabin design looks yeah. pretty amazing. It's, they it's, did a great job with it. I mean, I've flown only once on. I was lucky to fly once business class long haul on Swiss, and it was okay. I mean, the design was good in terms of the way it looks, but the actual experience, me being six four, so one ninety five and a half centimeters, was kind of okay ish because it was not fully flat bed, so it would fall anyway. I'll talk to about that another day. But this looks much better, and that's uh, something I wish I can do one day. And talking about business and premium products, Greg has done something that is very interesting to me because you've actually flown La Compagnie. So La Compagnie, for those who don't remember, we talked about it a few times, is this airline who flies from Paris to uh, the US. It's an old business setting uh, plane, seating plane, sorry. How is that? That was great, I have to say. Yeah, uh, pretty much nothing but positive things to say. Um, so I came across that company through your podcast, um, however many episodes ago oh, that wow, was. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it really came about through, I, I had a flight, fairly short notice to New York this summer. Um, Alex well knows that I really despise the price hikes that airlines enforce over the summer. Uh, an example, the last summer last year, I flew BA, uh, Heathrow in Newark for around 450 GDP. Two months, this was pre-summer, uh, May at some, some point. Mid-summer, the price had gone up to £900, exactly That's the same way. That's ridiculous. Um, so I was really looking for ways to avoid paying £800, £900 for a flight this summer, um, or at least make my money worth it, because I'm, I'm really not a huge fan of paying this, a huge amount more for the same experience. Um, and in my searches, I found La Compagnie, who have recently started flying uh, London Luton. Uh, well, London's arguable, but... Luton uh, to, <laughs> to Newark, which is also built in New York, which is obviously arguable itself, um, <laughs> but still relatively convenient. Um, and they have, uh, I think they have three sets of pricing, uh, no, four, sorry, they have promo, best buy, semi-flex, and full flex um, that go up in, in price from promo to full flex, obviously. Um, and I found that 
the promo prices, which actually suited the days I wanted to fly, were cheaper than equivalent major airline economy. So Virgin, BA, wow. wow. etc., were around nine hundred pounds for a return flight for about a two week period, um, June, July. And that company was seven nine eight it came out to um on their promo price. So it was really a no brainer. If I was gonna spend that money, which uh it's still a lot of money to spend, but if I was gonna spend it I really wanted to make the most of it. So And how was inside? How was the, the experience so, inside? Was yeah, it- so they fly seven five sevens, which actually it's a little bit strange being in a narrow body transatlantic. I don't think I've ever been in one otherwise uh for that sort of distance. Uh the the interiors the actual plane interior itself is a little bit worn and aged, but the La Compagnie fittings are, are great. Um so they're obviously billed as economy version of business and that's exactly what it was. It was you have the space that is really what you want when you're paying that, that money, that's that's really the benefit. Uh the seats aren't full life flat, but they're super comfortable. Um I was quite happy just to sleep the entire way back. Um, it, the service was great. The food was great. Uh, I mean, far better than the most economy flights. Uh, certainly not. I, I've flown Emirates business once. It wasn't certainly up to that standard. But then again, I mean, look at the prices compared to what yeah. you pay on Emirates. Yeah, it's incredible. For, for yeah. The equivalent distance. I mean, this, this was really amazing value and, uh, staff and service were great. And it, it really just seemed like this is how flying should be. It was enjoyable again. <laughs> wow. I, I honestly was not expecting such a positive uh, f- feedback when you told me that you're flying on these guys. So I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a little bit of trepidation. I have heard they've, they've had issues with uh, availability of aircraft. I mean, I think they have five aircraft, or maybe one, but somewhere around five that serve the, the Paris to New York and, and uh, London routes and New York routes. And they do have some maintenance issues just with having such a small fleet. We did have a mechanical issue with one of the spoilers on the way out from Luton that delayed us for an hour or so, but they actually dealt with that really well. And yeah, I mean, I was comfortable. I had tons of legroom. <laughs> I had a good IFE. They have Samsung Galaxy tablets with the entire James Bond collection. <laughs> so, there nice. you go, Paul. That's a risk <laughs> for you. That's for me. Was the staff French or British? Yeah, it was a mixture, but mostly French. Uh, from what I could okay. understand, the ca- both captains we had were British. Um, there's three cabin crew, uh, I think, on the first flight. Two were French and one was British. And on the way back, the three of them were French. Uh, they spoke good English. Um, the staff at the airports were, were really helpful. Um, they had extra staff there just to make sure everything went smoothly. We had access to the lounge in Luton, which um, it's Luton, so you can't have too high expectations. But it was fine. It was nice to kind of be out of the buses of, of the airport itself. And, uh, Newark but lounge it, is pretty good. You, there's one thing here, one remark that is very interesting overall, what, I, what I'm reading you, is that, and that's maybe why, Alex, you just said that you were not expecting something so positive, is that a lot of the reviews that we've been reading about La Compagnie are made by people who tend to fly premium all the time. So when you tend to fly Emirates and Qatar and whatever, and you suddenly fly La Compagnie, for you, it's kind of a step down because if you're okay to pay prices or, or are very good at playing with your miles to be at La Residence or something, <laughs> then obviously when you have a product which resembles what premium products used to be 10 years ago, you're like, ah, well, it's okay. You know, I have a tablet Galaxy and I don't have like a massive LCD screen or something. But... That's maybe not how we should look at it. We should look at it like, hey, you know, you can fly 
with a premium product that might not be, of course, these lavish uh, Singapore seats or something, but that is a very competitive pricing and it offers an entirely new perspective on how to fly. Like you said, it's the right way to fly, Greg. So it's interesting because I, I tend to believe that a lot of people, if they had access, if they would, would try that, they would find it, the product actually fantastic. And maybe the reviewers are, you know, blasé with, you know, having champagne and caviar and what else. And so maybe that's the reason why. Yeah, I, I would definitely I agree know. with that. And I think, I mean, the obvious difference in price, if you, you look at uh, an equivalent business class flight that's going to be three times the cost, then sure, it's not going to compare because yeah. that's just not possible. But that's not what they're trying to do. They're just trying to give you a better flight experience for a budget. And they've really succeeded, I have to say. I sat down in my seat and I just I had to grin a little bit because <laughs> this is what I've been dreaming <laughs> of is, is a way to fly that I can realistically afford. I'm not going to fly within five, six times a year like I, I usually no, do. Of course not, but, but still. If I can do one trip instead of two or three trips to New York, then yeah, if I've got a little bit of spare money, I will absolutely pay for this again. Um, it's, it's just so refreshing. And we were actually told on the, on the return journey that we were going to be about an hour early on arrival. And that was just, it was the first time I felt I really don't want to be early because I just enjoy being wow. able to sleep. So I thought, damn it, I can, I can sleep for five hours instead of four if we went, so if we went early. Alex, we should, Alex, we should try that. <laughs> I, think we should we try should, that. I think we owe it to... Uh, to ourselves <laughs> uh, we owe it to ourselves to try that now, honestly it looks so interesting i'm sure i would like it uh yeah. but talking talking about uh talking about that uh so this designer is running uh currently uh our friends there are running a passenger choice award or something so if you want to vote for your favorite airline so you guys can do that you have until august 4th this is not related to premium product it could be anything but what is for you the best airline you've flown uh, in 2015, you just go. The link will be on our show notes. But I think it's worthwhile seeing what they've got. They uh, they've also done a ranking that's their own ranking of what they consider the best uh, business class. And not surprisingly, uh, Etihad is number one. Uh, Singapore is number two. Uh, Qatar is number three. Which is why I kept mentioning those in in the past segment. BA is actually number seven. So it's not a, it's all right because there's not a single. Uh, there's not a single American, of course, airline. I don't think Emirates is there either. So, you know, it's a pretty, uh, pretty strong argument. Uh, I think we're going to uh, switch now uh, to the airport of the week. But, not, but before that, I want to ask Greg another question is that you, may, you, have a, you had a very story at the beginning about your blood class. So that was a sad story. But are, are there any type of stories of flying stories or airport stories that you keep and maybe not the one you just mentioned with La Compagnie, but that is something that stands out for you. Uh, maybe as a kid or later, is it really something that a particular flight, something that really stands out for you? Yeah, I think there's a clear winner. And it was my uh, second trip to the US. I was 11 or 12, I think I was. Uh, it was a BA 747 and I was invited up to the cockpit by the pilot. And that was just pretty special. I spent about 10 minutes in the cockpit. He taught me through the controls. Um, and I remember distinctly how he described to me coming into land, um, I believe it was in Hong Kong, uh, and how he, he was describing the way that thunderstorms uh, looked from the air and how they were kind of all stacked up on, on his approach to Hong Kong. And that, that really stuck, kind of stuck with me, um, just the way that he, he described those. And, I mean, I love watching thunderstorms from, 
from planes. I know, Alex, you had some pretty amazing thunderstorm action a few weeks back in the US. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of my favorite bits of flying, staring out the window. And, and I always, when I see a thunderstorm, I always think back to that, those 10 minutes in that 747 in the cockpit. That's nice. Yeah. Oh, so you're, so you're, you're a window guy as well, right? Uh, actually, less so in my leg. I, I yeah, have yeah, to try and get up yeah. But yeah, I, I love the window seat. I can just stare out of it. I don't need an IFE when I've got a window seat. Yeah, and be smarter than Alex because when you choose a window, be sure it's actually a window. <laughs> now we all window. I mean, I, you know, that's really Alex. You said it in a few episodes ago. It's really said that access to cockpit is so restricted now, especially for kids, yeah. because that's. I think all of us have a memory of being in a cockpit. Uh, I think I, I even did. I think it was a landing, but I was in a cockpit for a landing. I mean, come on, we kind of beat that as a memory, even if you know, even if you. Don't end up being a pilot. Don't end up being a creator of a podcast of on airline of aviation podcast. It's still something pretty unbelievable. So Absolutely, it's, it's a bit sad. It's a bit sad. Um, have you ever guys been uh, talking about that to Rio? No, I've not. No. No. You really should. But first of all, because it's one of the most wonderful cities I've, I've ever been to. I used to go quite. The, Quite a lot, actually, uh, working with a few startups there uh, up to maybe two years ago. And so I wanted to, to choose an airport that was uh, that didn't require me to do a lot of talk because we already talked a lot. And uh, so it's the airport is, <clears throat> well, let's say it's not that great, right? So it's a bit, it's a, it's, it's a bit sad because the city is, is a postcard. It's one of the most beautiful cities I've seen. It's uh, with this huge, you know, like hills in the middle. It's really like you see in the movies. It's really incredible, you know. And then the airport, which is the first thing, of course, you get. There's two airports actually in Rio. The other one is a domestic one. We'll cover it one day because you have the best views when you land there. But this one is uh, next to the sea, a bit like uh, the one in Hong Kong, for instance. But sadly, it's not up to the standards of Hong Kong. <laughs> it looks like really bad. They were supposed to uh, make it better uh, for the World Cup, the football World Cup in 2014. They kind of did a little bit. Uh, now they're actually still trying to make it better because, uh, as you know, there will be the uh, the Olympics in 2016 uh, as well, but it's still not there. So basically, first thing, if you ever go to Rio, don't expect anything good at the airport. Second, be very early because it's a mess, actually. Uh, it's We were talking about the lines at JFK. The, the lines there are just also messy and not because it's difficult to enter, just because there's just not enough of them. And they're like in small wooden boxes. I'm not kidding. You have wooden boxes for immigration, uh, and that actually slows the whole process down. So uh, they're making improvements. Terminal 2 has been kind of almost fully renovated. Terminal 1 is not, but basically do not expect a lot of things. It's open 24 hours a day, so you can technically have a layover there, though I wouldn't particularly... Tell you to have a to sleep in the airport because you have Rio, you know, next to it, which is kind of nicer than staying in the airport. So that's maybe why you shouldn't. <laughs> it's pretty easy to go to the city as well. Uh, one tip: there are two types of cabs. One cab, the cabs that are, if I remember, blue, and the cabs that are yellow. The blue ones are the executive cabs, and the yellow are the ordinary ones. Basically, there's a price difference. Know that because when you step out of the airport, it's such a mess. Everybody shouts, you know, like honking all over the place that you might end up in the blue and paying more. Maybe it's actually better because that air condition is not actually really worth the price. So there you go. That's what I wanted to say. Oh, yeah. To, for plane spotters, for you, Greg, the photographer, 
If you want to take pictures of planes or the runway, there are two spots that are kind of nice. Uh, in Terminal 1, there's something called the Air Cafe. You can see the parking spots of the planes are part of the runway. And in Terminal 2, you, uh, that's the International and the Con Concourse 1. You can also uh, see uh, views of the parking, the gates, some of the aprons, etc. And a very good spot. And even I think you can go even if you're not ticketed. So if you're not a passenger, oh, there's, nice. a, there's a corridor between Terminal 1 and 2, you know, to walk between them. From that part, uh, you can see actually can make it look good, a lot of a cool plane spotting if you into that type of thing. So that was for Rio. So I hope that when we redo an episode in 2016, I'll be able to redo Rio and to tell you that now it's a great airport <laughs> because for the moment it's sad because they actually have a lot of friends there. They complain about it. The fact that it's really not the image we should give about, you know, this magnificent city and having such a messy airport. Mm. So it's not really not the greatest experience in the world. Greg, uh, before I thank you, uh, I want to, do you, is there, this is a question I, I ask to a lot of guests, is there anything besides flying business all the time, is there anything, if you had the power to change one thing about the experience of air travel, what would it be? A single thing. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. I think probably the thing that, stresses me out the most is just the unpredictability of it and that's not that has something to do with airlines in terms of is your carry-on going to get accepted or not that sort of thing mm -hmm. but what can you bring through security <laughs> depending on the airport oh, yeah. and the mood of the person you speak to it's it seems that everything is still oh, yeah, so variable that even though i visit airports dozens of times throughout the year i'm always second guessing myself as to how I pack, what yeah. I pack, and, and that really just is the probably the most stressful part of it. I mean, it doesn't keep me up at night, but it just seems like it, that's something that would be nice to figure out. I know it's kind of dull; it's not really a, a, a something super. No, but I mean, it makes to, a lot of sense because I have I have that kind of issue as well all the time. I and mean, I've I've run into airports like you, like you said, suddenly something that was good in one yeah. just said, yeah, well, this is not okay. I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> what yeah I've flown with this 10 times. I've never had an issue. And now you're telling me that it's a problem. Should we? Should, That's infuriating. Should, should we crowdsource something and do like, it would be nice to have just a wiki of, you know, everybody that travels just puts on every airport, this was okay, this was not, this was okay, this was not. Because sometimes I wish there was like some, some kind of, information central when I can know that in advance because it just doesn't make any sense sometimes. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> we should absolutely do that. Oh, that guys, any closing words? Alex, Greg? No, I think uh, I think this has been great. Greg, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. No, that's quite all right. There's actually one thing I forgot to mention This coming back to La Compagnie really quickly. Um, I didn't actually mention they have started a frequent flyer program as well. It's really oh. recent. So they do their own program oh. and I... I only found this out today. I think I had an email from yesterday. They give you 10 points as a welcome gift. Um, and you only need 20 points for a free one-way ticket. So that's quite generous. <laughs> what? No way. Um, so you get a certain number to... of points based on the, the class of ticket you buy. So the promo, the cheapest is one point all the way to full flex, which is five points. So it's one, two, three, and five for the, the ticket. Brackets. But that means a full, that means two full flex. You mean return or you mean a single flight? Uh, that's one point per flight for promo and five points per flight for full flex. So basically, you do a return flight, full, full flex. flex, and you have a free yeah, flight with the because you have ten points. You have a yeah, free one one way flight. 
Um, I mean, the full flats is it's crazy for, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, yeah, but, but I mean, even then, it's it's a really generous deal. <laughs> so. No, it's it's actually mind-boggling because even though it's expensive, I mean, in general, you know, it might be as expensive as a business class and another like a traditional sure. business class. But the traditional business class, you won't get a free flight of, to a certain. Like you have to wait a freaking long time. Before. That's actually pretty mm, impressive. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, they're just that's confidence in, confidence in their product. Oh yeah, that's confidence in their product. Mm. Exactly. Or maybe I don't. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Alex, we clearly have to do that. Yeah. yeah I really hope they stick around. Uh, like I said, I was impressed. So as long may they be around, and I hope they they can change things up in the industry a little bit as well. What's your next destination with a, a plane? You already know. Uh, Copenhagen. First thing tomorrow morning, super early, and then Faroe Islands Friday morning. Wow, Faroe Islands! Mm. Oh, how, how do you get there? Copenhagen. Oh, that's not right. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. Well, <laughs> you, Alex, are you flying this week? Not this week. Uh, at the end of the month, I'm flying to Geneva. Oh, true. I was there actually last week. Uh, yeah, actually, that's true. But. Yeah, I'll give you a few tips for Geneva then. Uh, I mean, although you have our episodes about it, but I'll give you a few tips. That, uh, nice. For me, will be, my next will be Dublin. But that's only uh, beginning of August. We might have another episode until then. So, guys, thank you so much. Uh, and I'll see you somewhere in an airport. All right. Happy flying. On behalf of Layovers and the entire crew, we would like to thank you for joining us on this podcast today. And we're looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants, please prepare for landing.